You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to Redemption Hill Church. It is a privilege and joy to be with you this morning. Okay, we're on sermon number 25 in our trek through the book of Ephesians, including today's sermon. We have four messages left in Ephesians, so that brings us to, what, 2028? Just a couple notes here after Ephesians. I sent an email just kind of regarding this. After Ephesians, I plan on teaching on the suffering in Christ, and I want to show how it is because of the suffering of Christ, that we can rightly understand our own suffering in our own life. Because here's the reality of the fact. Suffering is a part of life. And we need to contend with that reality. So how do we look to Christ in the midst of our suffering to understand kind of what's going on? I heard this from a pastor and it landed well on me. And this is part of the reason why I'm going to be preaching a short sermon series on suffering servant and suffering saints. He said, pastors, prepare your church for suffering. I think he's right. Because you and I all know, if you haven't suffered yet, you will at some point. So that is down the road, probably in about a month or so. Today, as you can tell from the text, I'll be dialing into parenting. Uh, Before going there, how about a little bit of levity? Uh, I was sitting at the cafe with my two girls at Smoky Row yesterday, and I said, hey, talking about parenting, we preaching on parenting, how about some good sermon titles? And so they're quick to give suggestions. Here are a few for you. Uh, it was suggested that the title of the sermon would be Parenting and Its Perks. Not bad, not financial perks, but some perks, absolutely. Parenting is about love. I thought that was good, that we're going to talk a little bit about that today about kids and parents cooperating peacefully. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Uh, this is a, a clever one. Kids obey, parents pray. God, I got a little rhyme thing going on there. There were some other ones. I thought they were cute. But now on a more serious note, the Bible is amazingly practical. Uh, even though the main theme of the Bible is about redemption, reconciliation, and restoration through faith in Jesus Christ, God knows the power of the gospel gets into the most basic elements of your life. As a matter of fact, it's in the basic and most familiar areas of life where we see God at work, where we see reconciliation, where we see restoration and redemption. It's in your everyday life where we we see that, where we see God at work. The the power of the gospel impacts your marriage. It impacts parenting. The power of the gospel transforms children. Yes, God is going to speak to you, kids, this morning. God wants you to see the joy of being a child to parents that love you. Your parents aren't perfect. I'm not a perfect dad, but I certainly love my kids. Just a few more pastoral thoughts on parenting, and then I'll pray and get into our passage. Parenting is a tremendous privilege. 
parents, God has entrusted you to steward, nurture, and care for your children. Yes, parenting is hard. I got 11 years of experience. I'll tell you some of the ways that it is hard, but it's good. It's hard, but it's good. We need God's help because it is hard. So parenting cultivates like sanctification and it's humbling. I can't tell you how many times I've been humbled in my own parenting. Without God, we parent our kids into wicked things. With God, we are able to shepherd our kids toward Christ. Now isn't that a tremendous privilege, parents? We shepherd them towards Jesus. And thank goodness the Bible is not silent, as we could see and as we read, is not silent on the topic of parenting. Actually, it speaks loudly on the topic of parenting. With the gospel as the foundation of parenting, from the foundation, parenting principles emerge in Holy Scripture. One final note before I pray. Ephesians 4, or excuse me, Ephesians 6, verses 1 to 4, speaks to the, to, to the norms of the family unit speaks to God's design. This passage that we are looking at today does not get into single motherhood. It does not directly address the various complexities in any given uh, family, right? I mean, I, I will talk about the fatherless this morning, but time just doesn't allow to get into all the nuances that certainly do exist and um, that do exist within families. I mean, I thought about this this last week. I thought about King Solomon. He had hundreds of wives. And I thought to myself, what does parenting look like there? I mean, I don't have time to get into that kind of dynamic. There's so much one could say about parenting. But once again, the goal of expositional preaching, which is the style and the way that I do preach, is I always want to stay on point. All right. This is an awesome and weighty topic. I need to pray for God's help. And then we'll get right into it. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is very clear and instructive. Lord, we want your word to be instructive to all of us, not just parents and kids, but every single person in this room. Because every single person in this, in this room, in this church, can contribute to others as a church family. So I pray that you would instruct our hearts by the power of the Spirit. When we pray this in the only name that we can pray, in Jesus' name, amen. All right. I was thinking this week, why does the Apostle Paul take time to write about marriage last week, children this week, and then parenting as well. Why does he take time to do that? In Ephesians, we have unearthed one theological gem after another. Paul says to the Ephesian church, and now God says to us, this is the title of the sermon series, United in Christ. Stay united in Christ. And as you unite around the truth of the gospel, now here's what it looks like to live united. What have we seen in Ephesians 4 and most of Ephesians 5? The, ch the church is to walk in a manner worthy of its calling. You, Christian, are called to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. The church is to walk in love. The church is to walk as children of the light. We're supposed to walk as wise. I think you all see that believing the theological string of pearls in Ephesians 1, if you want to go back even further, and knowing it is by the grace of God that you have been saved through faith, that's Ephesians 2, results in, believing these things results in a transformed life. A life transformed by Christ touches every aspect of your life. 
You don't get saved and not change. God saves, and then there's change. Your place of employment isn't just a place you receive a paycheck, but like all of a sudden you're thinking because you've been transformed, it's a mission field. Your neighborhood isn't just a collection of houses with families inside those houses. There are image bearers of God who need to hear about the gospel in your neighborhood. Church isn't a box to be checked, but it's a place where we come together to worship our great God. A transformed heart makes that shift. You don't check a box, but it's not going to get to worship Jesus with the saints this morning. Your marriage, as we saw last week, takes a distinct shape and conforms to the character of Christ. We saw how headship and submission are actually not these terms that have a particular meaning, but they're connected to Jesus. And what we see today is that parenting isn't about raising good kids who contribute to society. Let me say that again. Parenting isn't about raising good kids who contribute to society. It certainly could be a part of that. But if that's the main thrust of parenting, then you miss what God has to say about parenting in Holy Scripture. Raising kids is about pointing them to Jesus. That's what it's about. Just as you personally become more like Christ and your marriage is a reflection of Christ, Parenting displays the glory of Christ. Consider this point. The only reason a message about parenting makes sense is because of what we've discovered in Ephesians chapter 1 to chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 1 to chapter 5 is the foundation of these four verses on parenting. I mean, how can you train and instruct your kids in the Lord without understanding these great theological truths of election, adoption, right? Ephesians 1. How can you point your kids to Jesus if you don't know Ephesians 2.8? How can you help your kids walk in a manner worthy of God if you don't know how to do it yourself? Ephesians 4 and 5. The previous 24 sermons in Ephesians is the lead-up. took 24 sermons as the lead-up to understanding how to parent your kids well. That's the lead-up. 24 sermons in Ephesians is the lead-up to understanding the principles to Christian parenting. And all you kids who are listening, kiddos, children, like I said, God is speaking directly to you as well. I'm not just talking to parents. I have something to share with you. More importantly, God has something to say to you. Yeah, you're a sinner just like me, but God speaks to you because he wants you to flourish within your family. He wants you to thrive. Kids, he wants you to thrive. He wants you to see the joy and privilege of growing up in a family where, Lord willing, parents love Jesus. And anyone who's not a parent or a child. Why should you care about this sermon? I'm glad Ryan alluded to it earlier. What does parenting have to do 
with you if you have no kids or you're not a kid. I would like to remind you of something many of you affirmed during two previous baby dedications. At every child dedication or baby dedication, I invite the church to respond to this statement. I'm going to quote it. Do you, members of Redemption Hill Church, receive this child in the name of the Lord Jesus and promise? We're asking the church to make a promise when we do a child dedication and promise to receive this child as a part of this community. And do you promise to walk with these parents as they disciple their child and share the gospel with their child? After I read this statement, I ask everyone to say, we do. Parents are not alone in child rearing. Parents have the primary responsibility to raise their kids, but they're not alone. They're not alone. Perhaps there was a, a shred of truth in the statement made by Hillary Clinton in 2003 when she said, it takes a village to raise a child. Remember that? When she was first lady. Clinton has written a book with the title, It Takes a Village. The concept predates Clinton, but in each iteration, the phrase village is a liken to society. That's what she's saying there. According to Clinton and others, it takes a society to raise a child. Now, I think you can see the shred of truth that does exist in the statement. It is, is it good for a single mom to receive help or a mom and a dad to receive help in raising kids? Yeah, I think so. Why? Parenting has its challenges. But Clinton's statement is not entirely true. It doesn't square with Holy Scripture because the village isn't a society. It's the church. It's the church. What we have, what have we seen in Ephesians? Theological and practical instru- instruction for the church. And within the church are families. And within the church are marriages. And in many marriages there are children. The church is the village that comes alongside individual families as touch points of care, encouragement, and love. So it takes the church to extend gospel love to parents and children. If you were to take one passage out of Ephesians, kind of wrap it around today's text, what one would you take? Would you go to Ephesians 1? You could. I went to Ephesians 5. Here's what I would use to help frame um, children and parenting. It says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. We see how children is being used in a very metaphorical sense here. And walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Everyone who has been saved by the grace of the gospel at age 8, 18, 58, is a beloved child of God. It is God's love of the body of Christ that allows parents and children to thrive. So, there is not an adult in this church that does not have a vested interest in seeing the kids of this church raised in the love of the Lord. You all have a vested interest to see that happen. Every member of this church can be praying for every parent in this church. It takes a God-ordained and biblically ordered village to raise children in the Lord. And of course, raising kids begins with parents. You might remember I said that the last two verses in Ephesians 5 is the biblical context of three examples of godly submission in the home. It's like, how do we rightly order the home? Here's that passage. 
as a church, we are to give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, highlighting verse 21 here, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Here's what submitting looks like in the church. I said this last week, it's serving one another, speaking truth to one another, offering encouragement to one another, walking alongside one another, especially during the hard times. Submitting to one another is not demanding or degrading, but it is life-giving. Submitting to one another creates a community centered on love for each other and love for God. Last week's example of submission was within the context of marriage. And we see submission here today between parents and children. But I hope you already see that biblical submission is not like the submission we hear about or we read about within the culture. Culture is going to define it vastly different, especially as it pertains to the home. Cultural submission is more like an MMA fighter putting someone into an arm bar or wrist lock to win the match. That's not what we read in the Bible. Biblical submission is connected to Christ. Christ's example of submission is best understood when we set our gaze upon the cross. That's how we begin to understand marriage, parenting. As we're going to see next week, we've got bond servants and masters. So I won't rehash the importance of Genesis 1 and 2, which lays out the foundation of marriage and family. If you want to know more, just go listen to last week's sermon. But I want you to remember it is that God has ordained marriage and the family, and within marriage and the family, there is specific order. I think it's really important to see that and to emphasize that once again. God has created an ordered, an ordained order in the family so the family can flourish. And I keep using this word flourish. What do I mean by flourish? Well, within God's design, families flourish when moms and dads love each other. And that love is evident. Like, kids see it. Like, mom and dad love each other. And they're not faking it to make it. Right? Families flourish when faith in God is the highest priority. We do a terrible job at prioritizing things. But when that's the number one priority, when that's the number one priority, is our our love and our faith for Jesus, then you see flourishing within Christian families. Think of it this way. Disorder and chaos do not produce flourishing, but pain, brokenness, and hardship. Order is not bad. Order is good. It's good for me. It's good for you. We see in Ephesians 6, verses 1 to 4, more order in the family that is established beyond a marriage between a husband and a wife. In verses 1 to 3, we read about the the dynamic between parents and children. In verse 4, fathers are specifically called out. So dads, I'm going to be talking to you specifically about how your leadership functions in the home. What does it mean to be a godly father? What God says about the family is a radical departure from culture going all the way back to the first century. I think it's helpful to note the radical contrast between the value of Christian family from first century Roman culture to what we see in Scripture. Consider this contrast. John Stott, a late pastor, said this. It was a radical change from the callous cruelty which which prevailed in the Roman Empire in which unwanted babies were abandoned Weak and deformed ones killed, and even healthy children were regarded by many 
as a partial nuance because they inhibited sexual promiscuity and complicated easy divorce. Don't tell me we don't see a little bit of that today as well. Stott's characterization is certainly a generalization. Not every Roman family had a disdain for children. I think that's a true statement. However, Stott does tap into the cultural vibe of first century Roman families. As in the first century and today, Christian families and Christian parenting, like I've said, takes on a distinct flavor. All children are valuable to God. Children are not a burden, but they are a blessing. Kids, you are a blessing to your parents. Psalm 127 verse 3. Without a doubt, a strong society means there are strong and healthy families. And Paul gives us a picture of what a healthy family is, and he gives us some of the principles that we can live by out of the context of Christian love. Let's look at verses 1 to 3. I know there's a long lead-in to get it to our text. We read this in verses 1 to 3 of Ephesians 6. Children, so like kids, when you're reading your Bible, and it says children, it's not metaphorical, this literally means you. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, for this is the first commandment with a promise. Verse 3, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. So for the remainder of my time, I'm going to be following four key verbs. See two right here. Honor, obey, do not provoke, and then bring them up. Do not provoke and bring them up are in verse 4. Let's look at the first verb, obey. You should note that the call to obey is not between a husband and a wife. You didn't see that last week. It's used between parents and children, which means the relationship between a husband and wife and parents and their kids is fundamentally different. I know I'm stating the obvious, but it's clear in our text, right? I've never said to Sharice, I don't think I have, correct me, you must obey me. I don't think I've ever uttered those words. No? Good. Good. Never uttered those words to my wife. You must obey me. But I told my kids, <laughs> you must obey me. <laughs> I've told that to them. All right, kids, I'm going to talk to you for a moment because you are a part of this church just as much as your parents. The call from God for you is to obey your parents is a command. Now, I know it's not always fun. You hear, clean up your room right? Or clean up your toys. Do your homework. Stop pestering your brother or sister. I've said many more things to my kids. The list goes on. But do you think your mom and dad are asking you to do something that is unreasonable? Hang with me for a moment. If you pull out the toys and make the mess, is it unreasonable for you to clean up your own mess? Well, I think you know the answer. (laughs) No, of course not. In the moment, you are not thinking about what is reasonable. You just want to not clean up the mess. But you know the answer to that question. You make the mess, you clean it up. When you obey a just command from your mother or father, you are honoring God with your actions. That's what we see in our text. There's an element here which you're honoring your mom and dad when you do what they ask Why does God want you to obey your parents? I think that's a good question to answer. God has called your parents to care for you in unique ways that no one else can. The government, your pastor, me, 
a teacher at school, your neighbor, are not a replacement for your mother and father. Because God has placed a specific mom and dad in your life, talking about the ideal here, it placed them in your life to obey, because that is what is, we see this word, right. Kids, obey your parents, because that is what is right. That's what we read at the end of verse 1 of Ephesians 6. There's another reason why children obey parents. We read this in Colossians 3. Children, obey your parents in everything. Kids, I know you don't want to hear this, but in everything is in the Bible. (laughs) So in everything, obey your parents, for this pleases the Lord. And I want you to focus on that aspect. It pleases God when you obey your parents. Your obedience is wrapped up in the context of your relationship with God. Now that's pretty cool. Kids, God is pleased when you obey. And it is a joy when you are able to please God. So when mom and dad say, hey, time for bed, and then you obey, sad face. But God is pleased with you. God is pleased with you. Now, before I go any further, I need to acknowledge the obvious. Each child, like me, your pastor, is a sinner. He's a sinner. You will sin. But here's the deal. God does not want you to feel the crushing weight of displeasure. And then that's the reason why you obey your parents. It's not out of fear. No, God desires his grace to motivate you to obedience. It's his grace. It's a fundamental difference. I grew up in a culture of fear because of how I grew up religiously. It's like, I'm going to do this because I'm fearful. My dad always said, I'm going to put the fear of God in you. It was more like the fear of dad in me. (laughs) That's not how God operates. His grace is what motivates you to obedience. If you know God is good, and you know there is an abundant amount of grace for you kids, then you will learn from your mistakes instead of being crushed by your mistakes. You will strive to obey your parents by the grace of God. You don't strive to obey your parents in your own will, but you look up to God and say, I just need help. I'm 40 years old, kids, and I'm still saying to God, I need help. Now, good parents do make appropriate demands for their children. It's called nurturing and helping kids grow into maturity. And children are called to obey their parents. So kids, you are to obey. And now we read another verb, honor your parents. Honor is the second verb. Let's look at verses 2 and 3. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and you may live long in the land. I'm going to have to explain that because that doesn't really fit unless we understand the Old Testament. So kids, you should notice the quotation marks around verses 2 and 3. So that means the Apostle Paul is quoting someone else. Does anybody know? What's the Apostle Paul quoting? The fourth commandment. You know the Ten Commandments. This is number four on the list. The Hebrew word for honor means to give respect. Kids, you are called to honor and respect your mom and dad. And notice... There is a promise connected to honoring your parents. When you honor your parents, life tends to be a lot better. It says in verse 3 that you honor mom and dad so that you may live long in the land. What does that mean? Well, in the Old Testament, land was connected to like prosperity and good living. 
Israelites are always trying to get to the land. Now, while there are no assurances that a person's life will prosper while on earth, the Bible does lay out general principles that lend itself toward good living. For example, if you keep eating Big Macs for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you're probably going to have a heart attack. There's a principle in there somewhere. If you are disciplined in your eating habits, you'll have better health. The book of Proverbs is filled with principles that lend itself toward good living. Kids, honoring and respecting your parents will lend itself, will lend you toward good living. If you do not honor your parents, then there will be consternation and hardship. And nobody wants to live in that. Again, obeying and honoring isn't about do's and don'ts. If that's the sum of how we think about honoring and obeying, then you're missing what God is saying. God wants you to grow up in a home that cultivates and fosters a love for Jesus. God wants you to grow up in a home where God's design is at work and the home is allowing you to flourish. Mom and dad want you to flourish. You know, I'm, like I said, I'm 40 years old and I still try to honor my father and mother. I know I don't live in my parents' house anymore. Um, I have my own family that I'm raising. But I do my level best to honor Roger and Sue Powers as much as I'm able. I don't think the fourth commandment ends when a child leaves the house. I think it's ongoing. I think God is still calling me to honor them. So the fourth commandment here is really for everyone. All right, kids, now I'm going to shift focus off you. The last verse is directed at fathers. Let's read this in verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, some scholars seem to suggest mothers and fathers are the subject of verse 4. And certainly, verse 4 can be applied to mothers as well as fathers. However, I do think fathers are the main subject here. If the Apostle Paul wanted to talk to moms and dads, he could have used the word from verse 1 that gets translated as parents. He's already used the word for mothers in our passage. But he didn't do that. I think fathers are specifically in view here. So dads, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you because you're the head of your house. You set the tone and trajectory for the family. Fathers are ultimately responsible for the care and protection of the entire family. Fathers play a critical role in the home, and their role is highlighted all throughout Scripture. So I'm going to make a parenthetical statement here for a moment about the fatherless, and then I'm going to tease out verse 4 and highlight the responsibilities of fathers. Because what we read here in Ephesians 6 matters to God. You know what else matters to God? Those who don't grow up with a father. And that is all throughout Scripture as well. I want to talk about the fatherless because we live in a broken world where many children grow up without fathers. And there are single moms who sacrifice over and over and over again to care for their children. Therefore, we should not be surprised at God's desire to care for children without fathers, children who do not grow up with the privilege of living in within God's design. Here's Isaiah 117. 
learn to do what is right, seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of who? Defend the cause of who? We could be talking about many different demographics and segments of society, but he's pointing out the fatherless. Defend the cause of the fatherless. And here is Psalm 82, verse 3. Defend the cause of the weak and who are we have again? Fatherless. For those who did not grow up with a father, or your father just did a poor job of raising you, we know from Scripture God's deep care and love for you. I mean, again, we talk about the power of the gospel. It's at work when you walk out God's design for marriage and family and the power of the gospel to come and care for those who don't have fathers. There's a deep love that God the Father has for those who are fatherless. We read from the Bible that God the Father sees you and does not and has not looked past you. So yes, we're talking about the ideal We also want to acknowledge there's a lot of people who are not living in the ideal. And God sees that. And God does call the church to step into places where children do not have earthly fathers. Sometimes the church steps in and says, you know, we're going to adopt. And I think that is wonderful in the church. Let's adopt children. Many of these kids who are being adopted are coming from single moms. Or the church steps in and there are fathers in the faith, right? I needed many of those throughout my Christian journey. You can expect this church to get involved with, I've mentioned this before, Together for Good, a pre-foster care ministry that will soon be up and going here in central Iowa. Whatever the role each member takes on in the body of Christ, the church collectively takes on the heart of a loving and heavenly father. The church points the fatherless to an almighty heavenly father who does not fail, who does not abandon, and who does not disappoint. So there's physical and spiritual realities going on when we talk about the fatherless. What we see all throughout scripture and in communities and subcultures is that the absence of fathers, it could be physically absent, it could be just mentally gone, right? What we see is more crime, more chaos, and more disorder. Now, mercy must be extended to people in those situations. Absolutely. But we also want to acknowledge the importance of God's design, which brings stability and flourishing. Um, I do believe families are the backbone of communities. I I do believe that's what we read in scripture. Okay, parenthetical statement over now back to the text. Paul gives us a negative statement and then a positive statement about how fathers are to raise children. First, fathers should not provoke children to anger. That's the first one. Provoke is that third verb I was talking about. Now, note the restraint and self-control of a father. That's really important when it comes to parenting. Dads, oftentimes it's when we are rash in responding to our children that we parent poorly. I can attest to that. It's when I'm rash is when I'm the worst parent and I'm the worst sinner. We end up provoking or stirring up our kids to anger. I like how one pastor, Brian Chapel, translates this verse. says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. To all you earthly fathers out there, does your heavenly father exasperate or frustrate you? Does he? Of course not. 
You know the answer. He has been patient with you, has he not? If you know God and you know the answer, therefore go and do the same. Don't exasperate, but be patient. And here's the deal. We don't want our kids to be angry, and we certainly don't want to be the source of their anger. Right? Like I already said, fathers set the tone in the family. You set the trajectory in your family. If you are grumpy all day, don't be shocked that you have a house that is very dour, right? If you are angry all day, don't be shocked that everyone's going to be on pins and needles. If you're joyful, guess what you're going to find in the family? There's a, there's a tendency where there's joy going on, right? You set the tone and, and the trajectory. I, I think it's good for fathers to receive this correction if, if you need it. The love of Christ isn't fostered in a home when you provoke, but when you're patient. But when you're patient. And, and listen, the correction from verse 4 is, is for our good, it's for my good, and for the good of your family. And with, and with the metaphorical swift kick in the butt comes a ton of grace from God to change and to grow. Let me go back go to Titus 2 real quick where God gives the grace to save. He also gives the grace to change in Titus 2. So fathers, I'll let you evaluate your own heart and discern how to grow in the grace of Christ as you parent your children, as you care for your children. Now here's the positive admonition from the Lord from, for fathers. The Greek word for bring them up is our fourth verb. It means to nourish or feed. So when you bring your kids up in the Lord, you're nourishing, you're feeding them. Or as John Calvin says, fathers are to deal gently with their children. So note, when it comes to discipline and instruction of children, you are not, it's not being domineering or harsh. It's the opposite. Fathers, when it comes to discipline, I want you to keep these three truths in mind. So dads, these three truths in mind when it comes to nourishing and caring for your kids. First, your child is an image bearer of God. It's good to remember that, especially when you're frustrated, because we all get frustrated. Number two, your child is a sinner, just like you. Number three, your child is a sinner who desperately needs Jesus. Image bearer of God, a sinner, and a sinner who desperately needs Jesus and help from Jesus. If the way you discipline betrays any of these three points, you need to stop, you need to reflect, and you've got to course correct. You've got to course correct. But discipline is good. Discipline is good. I know it's, it can be kind of faddish these days to not discipline children. It's not what the Bible says. Discipline is good when done rightly and when done faithfully. Here's what we read in Hebrews 12. For the moment... All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. I think, kids, it's good for you to see this as well. It seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who've been trained by it. So discipline actually ends up having a good cause, a good result, when it's done right. Again, self-controlled discipline from a father is good. Even our Heavenly Father disciplines the one He loves. He, he chastises every son whom He receives. Chastising means rebuke. Sometimes Sean Powers needs a good rebuke from the Lord. 
And that's a good thing. That's Hebrews 12, verse 6, by the way. And so we train our kids well. We discipline them well with a heart that takes on our Heavenly Father's heart, a heart of love. And finally, earthly fathers take the lead in instruction. That's the other noun that's connected to that verb. What does Paul have in mind here when he says, Fathers, you've got to take the lead in instruction. I do think a primary goal for fathers is to ensure Christian instruction or catechism. It's a word I like to use in the home. For example, a mother can certainly read scripture and pray with her children. 100%, obviously. The principle to consider is this. If a husband and father is the spiritual leader in the home. So dads, if you are this, ultimately the spiritual leader in the home, the buck stops with you. If that is the case, guess who's going to give an account for his spiritual leadership in the home? To God, it is you. Look at all these dads who I know and I love. You will give an account to God for how you care for your kids, how you care for your family, how you instruct your family, how you bring them up. The father needs to ensure instruction is taking place, Christian instruction. Here's a significant passage, and I'll quote it at length. It's from Deuteronomy 6. It's a really important passage. It's called the Shema um, in Hebrew. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. A lot of theology here. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your might. This gets repeated numerous times in the Gospels, by the way. And these words, I command you, today shall be done, shall be on your heart. Now, this is really important. You shall teach them diligently. Parents, you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. I think the author of Deuteronomy, Moses, what he's basically saying is like, you're always talking about Jesus. You're always instructing your kids to Jesus, about Jesus, and to Jesus. It's always going on. When you rise, when you sit down, when you lay down, whatever you're doing. Here are several observations that I'll submit to fathers for consideration. Fathers need to make sure the instruction of the Lord for their children is more important than the instruction of calculus. Right? Calculus is good. I mean, I can't do it personally, but great discipline if you can do it. Good for kids to work hard in school, 100%. But again, this gets back to priorities here. Priorities. Better to teach your kids in the Lord than to teach them all those subjects in school. One is far greater than the others. Not dismissing the others at all. Not for one second. I want my kids to be smart, well-educated, all that kind of stuff. Yes, good. I push them. I push them hard. Mom does too. We'll continue to do that. All that's for not if we're not first talking about our faith. Fathers must ensure they are not outsourcing their duty to instruct their kids to outside institutions and organizations. Listen, supplemental instruction is great. Christian camps can be awesome. I've sent my kids to camps. Uh, Programs like Awana have a great place 
great outlet for kids to learn more about the Lord in, in different areas, right? Christian grandparents, I'm feeling this these days, Christian grandparents have a unique voice in caring for their grandchildren. I think that's awesome. Christian schools have a, might be a great option for families, but fathers, never abrogate your responsibility to someone else. Don't do it. It's on you. I, I don't know if I'm coming off harsh, but I'm, I'm passionate about this for sure. Don't abrogate your responsibility as the spiritual leader in your home, specifically over your kids as it pertains to this passage. It's up to you to dial into the spiritual needs of your kids. It's your calling and it's your duty. When I was a pastor over youth in the Twin Cities, I oftentimes said this to parents. It is my job to come alongside you in discipling your kids. That was my job. It wasn't to specifically be the primary discipler of their children. I come alongside the parents to disciple their kids. Now, surely there were cases where some children, some youth did not have fathers or their fathers were simply derelict in their duty. And, and so my posture took a very different stance. But if there was a father in the home who could do that, I wanted to come alongside him to care for his kids rightly, to disciple his kids rightly. So dads, you have the privilege to care for your kids. It's a high calling, but it's also an awesome calling. It really is. All right. Like I've said, the Bible is amazingly practical. It was interesting when we were early on in Ephesians, Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. I'm like, when are we going to get to the practical? feels like all we're doing is talking about theology. And now I'm thinking to myself, let's go back to the theology. We've been talking a lot of practical, but that's good, though. It's good that we see how the theology is tied to the practical. Within the main theme of the Bible, we talk about the theology. God is on mission to redeem, to reconcile, and to restore his elect people through Jesus Christ. And within this theme, the biblical nuclear family is a place where we see God's mission, right? Where we can clearly teach and model to our children these great and grand themes that we read about in, in the Bible. God knows the power of the gospel gets in, like I already said, the basic elements of your life. The power of the gospel impacts your marriage, it impacts your parenting. The power of the gospel can also transform children. As God works in the family, the love of Christ becomes that foundation, and the goal is the glory of God. That's the goal. The love of Christ is that foundation, and the goal is to bring God glory in our families. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.